ask Art Williams to come with Split Sermon, titled Against All Odds. We've all heard of stories about men, women, and children, even animals, that have been in a life and death struggle, a situation, a circumstance, perilous times that most likely will result in their death, but somehow, with determination, concentration, improvisation, they fight, they claw, they scrape until finally they find help or help finds them. And they survive against all the odds. Our Christian warfare is not unlike this fight. In Ephesians 6.12, it says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is a formidable adversary. And I want to read that scripture in the ESV and in Weymouth's New Testament, just because I think, depending on our society, sometimes the words just have a better, a more significant meaning. In the ESV, it says, we strive against cosmic powers over this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. I think that term cosmic power probably rings a little bit more significantly in the ears of our society. The Weymouth New Testament says, against the spiritual hosts of evil arrayed against us in heavenly warfare. Most of us probably don't even look at our daily lives as a struggle against all odds or even that we are at war a struggle not against a physical enemy, but a spiritual enemy with spiritual weapons and spiritual strategies. It says in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. He is a predator. If you ever watch a kitty cat go out into the wild, that's what they do. They immediately start tracking, be alert. Their ears are up, their nose is out, and they're looking for something. Sometimes they kill it and eat it. Other times they just kill it and walk away from it. So when you roll out of bed in the morning and you look in your backyard or perhaps around your apartment building, you probably see grass, maybe some flowers, maybe some pets running around. Maybe a tree, some leaves, a rabbit, squirrel, maybe some insects, mosquitoes, flies, wasps, bees, some rodents, maybe a mouse, maybe a ground, ground mole, and maybe a snake. And if we could put on spiritual glasses, what do you think we would see? Perhaps that snake isn't a snake. Perhaps he's a second lieutenant of a spiritual army. And there's a tent and a command post wherein he's mapping out his spiritual strategy 
against you for that day, for that week, for that month. And he's sending out his associates to influence people you'll have to interface with in attempt to destroy you spiritually, to get you to run off the spiritual road into the ditch, to get your mind off the spiritual issues and the spiritual opportunities of the day, and to get them so that they can be swayed so that he can influence them and hinder you and impede you to elicit from you a mindset or emotional response that can be manipulated and leveraged by him. A mindset and an emotional response that can be built upon next week and next month for the purpose of derailing you spiritually. The dark side is very diabolical and very scheming. The schemes are probably in many times beyond our capacity to even see them, be aware of them. Sometimes become, they become aware after the facts, other times they don't become aware at all. So it's important for us to understand how he operates, and we do have some instructions and some visibility on it. And before we get into that, I want to preface my, my statements with that everything God made in the beginning was good. He says he looked at all of his creation and it was good. It's how man and how Satan decides to manipulate and use these things that compromises it. We can learn a lot in Job, Job chapter 1 about how Satan works to derail us spiritually. Job chapter 1, verse 11. This is Satan's goal. But put forth your hand upon him now and touch all that he has, and he will curse thee to thy face. That is what Satan was trying to get Job to do. And so to do that, the first thing he did is he had a band of men come and kill the sons and daughters and the servants of Job at one location. So he used other men first. Then the second attack was fire from heaven that burnt the sheep and burnt up the servants that were tending the sheep. In our society today, we call that an act of nature. The first one we call war or maybe a terrorist attack. The third attack, again, comes from other people, men, who steal the camels and strike down the servants that were there. The fourth attack is an attack that, again, we would call a, a nature event, a windstorm that struck the house and collapsed and killed the people that were in it. And after all this, he brings one more. And this was a direct attack on his health. He strikes a job with boils. All for one purpose. All these attacks had one purpose, to get Job to curse God. Now, there aren't many scriptural references to Job's wife. 
and what their relationship was, whether it was good or bad. But it's interesting what Mrs. Job says to Lot, uh, to Job. And you've got to wonder whose side she was on or what influence she was under. Because in Job 2, verse 9, Job 2, verse 9, you would hope to get encouragement from your wife when you're in this situation. And she says to him, do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. Exactly what Satan wanted Job to do. The point is that Satan can use the physical to get us to lose faith and turn to the works of the flesh and go down the wrong path. In Galatians 5.19, we, we get a description of the works of the flesh. Each of these wor words by itself is probably worthy of a word study and a review for corrections that we could apply in our own lives. I want to look at three scriptures that verify or at least highlight Satan's activities. Before we go there, let's just review the works of the flesh. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness. We probably don't need to, to go in and do the rest of them. In verse 20, it continues. Let's go on to Ephesians 4.26. It talks about anger. And it describes for us, or it tells us that anger is an opportunity for Satan. I can get there. I think I left a... If you continue on in verse 27, verse 26, be angry, be angry and sin not. Let, the, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, verse 27, neither give place to the devil. So if we don't take care of our anger and we let it eat on us and we let it swell up and fester, eventually we're going to project that anger out onto entities that don't deserve it. It's good. That principle has been known by those that study such things for a long time. Another opportunity for Satan is described in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6. And here, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6, is talking about a husband and wife going away from each other for a while. And, then, and he says, come back together. I got the wrong scripture there, but the scripture that I wanted is the one where it talks about a husband and wife separating for the purpose of spiritual development and then coming back together so that you don't give Satan an opportunity to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And in 2 Corinthians 7.5 Okay, 7.5 Defried ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and then come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency or self-control. So this, 
a greater application of that principle is not to put ourselves in the situations where we know we're going to lack self-control or at least be forewarned and uh, focus our own attention upon that. And continuing on in 2 Corinthians 2.10, here's another principle about forgiveness. Because just like anger, if we don't forgive, it can eat on us, and it can fester, and it can build up. And so in 2 Corinthians 2.10, to whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if I forgive anything, to whom I forgave it, it's for your sakes, forgive I in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And that's what these scriptures are indicating, the devices of Satan, how he can leverage them, how he can use them. The full extent of the works of the flesh is yet to play out. Satan's influence globally is still going to increase in this world. And in 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, we see that this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And here again we're talking about men. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud. You can probably uh, quote this scripture without even looking at it. You've probably heard it so much. Blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affections, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, that's without self-control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power of it from such turn away. In 2 Timothy, now let's go to Ephesians 4.17 instead. Let's go to Ephesians 4.17. Ephesians 4.17. This I say, therefore, to testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds. And so much of what goes on in this world is because of vanity of the mind. The vanity of the mind, we already went through some of the works of the flesh. A lot of the works of the flesh are demonstrated by vanity. Power, control, self-importance, money are all vanity because when we die, they die with you. I like to read biographies of men of historical significance. Washington, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin. And one of the things I really zone in on is when these great men run across each other. When Jefferson comes in contact with Washington, and how they interface. Sometimes they get out guns and they go to a duel and they shoot each other and one of them is dead afterwards. But in other cases, 
after they argue their point, vehemently in some form, be it in the governmental form, or what, they go out to dinner afterwards. And I like to think the difference is because they don't have the works of the flesh involved. They are truly focused on what's best for the country or for the organization or for what the issues are before them in that form. They don't have a personal iron in the fire. They're not going to get rich off of this piece of land that's going to be developed if this proposition, whatever, is passed by the township because they own the land and they'll be able to develop it. They don't have a personal iron in the fire. In contrast this to the ambition, admonition that we get about ambition in Philippians 2.3. It says, let nothing be done through vain glory. Vain glory? It's my way because I know best or because I can get some benefit out of it. As Satan's influence on the world increases, the church will feel the impact of it. We see in 2 Timothy 4, 3, 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned on to fables. Paul states this again back in second, I'm not going to turn there, second Thessalonians uh, 2 1. And in all of this, Satan will present himself as an angel of light. And so the world marches on under the influence of Satan, his bio, his his schemes, diabolical schemes, influence in the world to become more and more evil. And at some point, man is going to get a little fed up with this, and I really believe that then Satan is going to give a solution. The solution for everything that's wrong in the world, and of course, that solution will be the political beast and the religious leader. I want to shift gears a bit, and I want to continue but I want to focus in on erroneous religious practices and motivations. And I've got these scriptures listed more as a list rather than as part of a dialogue. Um, and I don't have, I didn't put out the entire verse here in my notes. I just referenced the thought that Brian Kent was going to put the scripture up on the board, hopefully. Matthew 24, 5. Many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. How do they see, deceive them? Well, sounds good, looks good. It's an appealing message. Verse 8, Matthew 15, verse 8. People honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We can do a lot, many things. Uh, with our lips and have our heart be totally void. Matthew 15, verse 9, continuing, In vain do they worship me, teachings as, teaching as doctrines 
the commandments of men. And in 2 Timothy 3.5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And in Colossians 2, 20 through 23. Colossians 2, 20 through 23. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in the world are you subject to ordinances? Verse 21. Touch not, taste not, handle not. Verse 22. Which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, verse 23, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility in neglecting the body and not in the honor, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. One of the concepts that's at work here is the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. I don't know if anyone here has heard of the name Maimonides. Has anybody heard that name? Maimonides? Very significant in the development of a certain religion. And I really would encourage you strongly because it's very, very insightful to read what this man did, how he did it, and how it has been accepted. I'll spell it out for you, and you can go to Wikipedia, and it's, it's a fairly long article. M-A-I-M-O-N-I-D-E-S. Maimonides, very significant person. Maimonides, M-A-I. M-O-N-I-D-E-S. I think that's correct spelling. It's a fairly long article, but it shows the development of man-made religions. In Colossians 2, 8, Colossians 2, verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Um, the word philosophy is Strong's number 5885, I believe. It's either that or 5385. I can't read my own writing here. It means sophistry, which means window dressing. Okay? It's, again, it's form and it's, fa it's fashion and it's appearance. And the word rudiment is even more insightful. It's Strong's number 4747. And it means something orderly that's been laid down layer upon layer upon layer. The way, kind of the way we teach our children where we go to first grade and they learn to, they learn to write. And then they go to second and third grade. And they expand their vocabulary. And then they go further and they learn sentence structure. And we're talking about laying down rudiments, and that's what Maimonides does. He lays down one section, and he builds on that section, and he builds, and he takes some from the Arabs, and he takes some from the Jews, and he keeps building this, and, layer, and then he comes to conclusions of what's going to happen to the Messiah, and how the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to do these great things, and he's going to die and go away because he's not needed anymore.
Another aspect of false religious practice is Romans 2.8. It's self-seeking for glory. Romans 2 verse 8. Probably, I, start, I wrote down a lot of these and I put down my, my bottom line thought on it. It might continue in verse 9 actually. It's self-seeking for glory, for their own personal glory. It's not necessarily what's best for the organization. And this principle is, is applied everywhere. If you work in a large corporation, small company, churches, it's everywhere. Acts 19, 27 through 37. Here we run into Paul's interface with Demetrius. Demetrius made idols for worship. He's a coppersmith. So when Paul comes around and starts talking about idols, he gets really scared. He's gonna, this guy's going to ruin my business. I'm not going to be able to make any money anymore. I've got to stop this guy. And so money is another reason for false religious practice. And in 1 Timothy 6.5, 1 Timothy 6.5, Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. That gain is godliness. There are a lot of religions. With a, some of them have a great cathedral, very impressive. Great temples. Temple of God today isn't should be in the most beautiful temple God could want. His people. That's the temple of God today. If his temple isn't as good, isn't as beautiful as it should be, perhaps we need to do a little rehab and make it more beautiful. In Solomon, I, uh, this amazes me. 1 Kings 6.16. 1 Kings 6.16. This is Solomon building God's temple. And he built it 20 cubits on the sides of the house. That's all I want to look on, look at. 20 cubits on the sides of the house. And if we go over to 1 Kings 7.1. Now it took him seven years to build the temple of God. Seven verse, chapter 7 verse 1. But Solomon was building his own house 13 years. He took seven years to build the house of God and 13 to build his own. I'm sorry, but I wouldn't have the guts to do that. That makes some statement about Solomon, doesn't it? I in no way could ever do that. And Solomon's house, its length was 100 cubits and its width was 50 cubits, while God's was only 20 by 20. And it's interesting because if we go back to Deuteronomy 17, we get some instructions. Deuteronomy 17. I'm going to read just the, the important facts here. When you shall say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations. This is, he's talking about in the future when Israel is going to 
demand a king. This is the instructions given to that man that's the king. Shall not multiply horses to himself. He shall not multiply wives to himself. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Because, in verse 20, it says, Why? That his heart be lifted up above his brother. And if we look at the king of Israel, we know that David had multiple wives, but when he found out about it, he corrected that. But silver and gold today, big temples, large cathedrals, is integrated into the theology. And one of the latest things that's happened, and maybe some of you have seen it advertised on TV, uh, I won't mention the, the organizations that are involved, but churches are now selling, and I don't know how they, do, I, how they do this relative to being nonprofit, but they're now making available retirement annuities for you. Um, just a little bit if you're not familiar with annuities. Annuities, I give an investment company a lump sum of money. And they will say, based upon what your age is, and if it's a lifetime annuity, we will give you so many dollars every month for the rest of your life until you die. And they're gambling here that they can invest that money that you give them, and they can invest it at a significantly high enough rate that they can make money on it, or at least cover the money that you're going to need. They aren't as good as they used to be. My mom had several of them, and they were very, very good. But the bottom line question isn't about how good the annuity is or whether or not they're in compliance with the 501c. Maybe they're doing it outside of that. The question is, how does Jesus look at that? Is that a right way for a church to make money? I'm not going to answer the question, but I'll leave it for you to think about. In Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth for a lie. It's another deceptive practice. In Romans 1.18, they suppress the truth. And in Acts 13.9 and 10, they pervert the straight ways of God. And one that's really significant in our society today, if you think about it, 2 Peter 2, 2 and 3, immoral ways have eager disciples. Immoral ways have eager disciples and religion is brought into disrepute. Does it ring a bell with anybody? Morals have eager disciples. And religion is brought into dis dispute. Disrepute. And they thirst to make merchandise of you or to make money off of the people in the congregation. Edward Gibbon, in his book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, made a statement that probably summarizes all of this. I can't quote it because I, my, my book's packed away with stuff and I couldn't find it, but I, I can get pretty close to it. The early church fathers, in their enthusiasm to make converts, compromised the truth to make it more acceptable to unbelievers so they could build converts into the church. Our successful activity of beating the odds is found with Jesus and the instructions given by Paul about putting on the armor of God. 
and putting on the armor and reference the scripture, Ephesians 6, 13 through 17, he talks about putting on the helmet, which protects the head. And the head has at least four, depending how you look at it, at least four inputs. Ears, eyes, nose, mouth, taste. Those inputs come into the process of your brain. And that's where the workings of the flesh or the working of the Holy Spirit come in. How we process that. So it's important that we protect the head. So we have the helmet. Protect the head what goes in there. And the breastplate that protects the heart, emotions, souls, motivation. And the feet, where we go, what we do, how we enable ourselves in mobility. And of course, we have our two aggressive weapons, the sword and the shield. <coughs> In Colossians, now let's go to 1 Corinthians 1, 25 through 28. We know this scripture, 1 Corinthians 1, 25 through 28. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many nobles are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, the base things of the world, and the things that are despised has God chosen. Wise after the flesh. Not many wise men after the flesh. What does it mean to be wise after the flesh? Well, if we are wise after the flesh, we probably don't need God. Probably wouldn't be called. And if we were called and got into it, maybe we would run down one of the paths of errant Christianity. But we were given the Holy Spirit of God, in essence, a bestowment. It tells us that in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. I'm not going to turn there. But the essence of what we need is in Colossians 1, 27. Colossians 1, 27. Because this is what will facilitate us to beat all of the odds. To win all, out over all the odds. To whom God would make known what is the richest of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you have the Spirit, you have Christ living in you. And he is there to guide you and help you. The biggest error we make is allowing ourselves to get off track be swayed by the pools of the flesh and by some very sophisticated spiritual ploys by Satan. By keeping our eyes on the goal, on Christ, we can beat all the odds. By keeping our eyes on the goal, that goal to inherit his divine nature, to be like him, 
to be with him, to do what he does, and to enjoy what he enjoys. No other goal could be as great. It is superlative. Unless we are becoming conformed to the image of Christ, replacing human nature, becoming a new creature, letting the mind of Christ be in us, we're missing the goal. We become a new creature through the knowledge of God's purpose and how to live. And we accomplish this to accomplish this. We must study, pray, meditate, learn what's wrong, what's right, make corrections, seek his righteousness, his way, his guidance. It requires diligence, dedication, and earnestness to eat the heavenly manna, the word of God, is the key in this. It is a glorious goal. Make it your overall life location and work hard at it.